You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Of John chapter 6. And let's bow together in prayer before we begin. Our Father, your word is true. It is truth. And this revelation is from you. And uh, our role is to receive it and to bow the knee before it and to acknowledge that it is true. And every word of yours is true. And our job is not to somehow alter these truths to make them comfortable but to make ourselves to acknowledge that you are sovereign and that you are God. And there are things which are beyond our understanding. Help us, we pray, to understand and accept as plain and true those things which you have made plain and true. We ask, O God, that you would fill our hearts and our minds today through your word with wonder, love, and praise for you. And may we stand in awe of your great majesty, your great sovereignty, and your great grace. Bless this time in your word, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I came across a quote by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, God's Ultimate Purpose, and I thought there was a lot of wisdom and truth in these words. Dr. Lloyd-Jones writes, One advantage in preaching through a book of the Bible, as we are proposing to do, is that it compels us to face every single statement, come what may, and stand before it, and look at it, and allow it to speak to us. Indeed, it is interesting to observe that not infrequently certain well-known Bible teachers never face certain epistles at all in their expositions because there are difficulties which they are resolved to avoid, end quote. That's the danger of topical preaching where you're in a different book and a different passage every week and you don't start at the beginning of a book and go through to the end of the book. It's very easy to do that as a pastor or a preacher because... You can pick the passages that you like, the easy passages, the ones that are not going to make everybody offended, and the ones that are not going to rock any boats or upset anybody's apple cart. You can just sort of go through the easy stuff and and keep everybody happy, and it's very easy to do that. But when you begin at the beginning of a book, and you go all the way through to the end of the book, and you are committed to dealing with every passage and every verse, sometimes every word of Scripture, and to stand before it, and to acknowledge it, and to submit your will and your mind and your thinking to it, then you are inevitably going to come to passages of Scripture which beat you like a tied-up mule. And they make you conform yourself to them and conform your thinking to those passages and bow your knee to those passages, or you will kick against the goads and resist Scripture and resist God's Word. We come to just such a difficult passage of Scripture this morning. It's in John chapter 6, verses 37 and following. This passage, which speaks in the clearest, most unarguable terms of the sovereign grace of God and its purpose and its effectiveness in accomplishing God's redemptive purposes. This passage is avoided by many people. Uh, it's skimmed over by a lot of people. And it is one of those passages which is difficult and people try and avoid it, but we're not going to. In fact, not only are we not going to skim over it, we're going to hit the brakes and we're going to come almost to a screeching halt and spend the next three weeks at least just in verse 37, just so we can take it all in. Going over it too fast would be like drinking from a fire hose. We don't want to do that. We want to take it and pause and just bask in the glory of this incredible truth that's in verses 37 through 40. 
this passage is, these words of Jesus, I should say, were, are not just resisted in our day, in our American culture, where we do resist it because as Americans, we like to believe that we are fiercely independent. We are the captains of our own fate. We are the masters of our own soul. Nobody tells us what to do. We are independent people, and we want freedom, and we believe everybody should be free, and everybody is free. And most of all, I am free to do what I want. And we don't like to be told that the, we are just clay, and that there is a potter, and that the potter has the right over the clay to do with the clay whatever the potter sees fit. We don't like that. We resist that. And so we kick against any discussion on the sovereignty of God in salvation, or God's eternal decrees and what that means and how that works out with humans coming to faith in Christ. We don't want to kick against that. We want to submit ourselves to it and bow our knees to it. And you may say, maybe John chapter 6 is avoided because it is difficult to understand. Maybe that's why people avoid it. Because verses 37 through 40 are just difficult to understand. Let's read them together. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Now I ask you, is that difficult to understand? It's not difficult to understand. Is there anybody, as we were reading through this, and you read, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Is there anybody here who said, guys, don't get what Jesus is saying? The issue is not that it's difficult to understand. You know what the issue is? It's difficult to accept. That's the difficulty. It's not difficult to understand what He is saying. What He's saying is clear. In fact, this is the clearest passage on the sovereignty of God that you could hope to find in anywhere in Scripture. And it comes not from the mouth of Martin Luther, not from the mouth of John Knox, not from the mouth of Charles Spurgeon or John Calvin. It comes from the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, who tells us that there is a group of people given by the Father to the Son. And the Son will gather them all together. He will save all of them. He will not lose any of them. And He will raise them all up on the last day. That's clear. That's simple. That's easy to understand. It's difficult for us to swallow. Because we import into texts like this all of our human understandings of justice and fairness and all of the traditions that we have been taught and all of the background stuff that we have been taught which militates against this and says Jesus can't possibly mean that. That, that wouldn't be fair. That wouldn't be just. That wouldn't be right. At least how I measure fairness, rightness, and justice. And so we want to redefine what he says and try and find some way of squirming out from underneath this very difficult truth. But the meaning of the passage is just very clear. It's very clear. Notice in the context, and we talked about this last week with verses 35 and 36, that in this context in which the sovereignty of God in salvation, the eternal decree and purposes of God and the giving of His people, the election of God, is so clearly and forcefully and unarguably laid out in this very same context is at the very same time some of the strongest worded passages on the responsibility of men to believe. Verse 36, you have seen me and you do not believe. And as we've seen in chapter 5 when we talked about the sovereignty of God, human responsibility does, is not incompatible with divine sovereignty. This passage contains these two truths. Both of them are true. They had seen him and they are responsible to believe. But at the same time, God is sovereign and he chooses some for salvation and gives those some to his son to save. Those are not two combating, conflicting, warring truths. 
And there's a wrong way to approach passages like this, and it is to say, I see in Scripture two statements, and they conflict with each other because the Bible writers could never agree on this. And so you got guys like Paul and Jesus that were sort of radical on the sovereignty of God's side. And then you get guys like somebody else who's radically on the side of, of human responsibility. And so since we have these two warring truths, I'm going to choose one camp or the other where I feel most comfortable. And since I came from a Presbyterian background or a real sovereignty of God style family, and that's what I was raised up in, I'm a Lutheran or I'm a, I'm a hard reformed Baptist, I'm going to sort of land over in this camp and I'm going to argue against the guys in that camp. Or it would be wrong to say, I, I kind of like the free will side of things and I really believe man is free to choose. And that's the side that I feel most comfortable in because I know that I chose him So I'm going to land in this camp, and we're just never going to agree. And since Scripture disagrees within itself, we are free to disagree with ourselves, with each other. Is that a right way to handle this? Now, these are not two warring truths, friends. These are two independent divine truths. That God is sovereign, and that man is responsible. And if we are going to be faithful to Scripture, then we must believe and teach both. Both. With equal passion. And it's not right to say, well, I'm going to land in one camp or the other because Scripture can't decide which camp it's in. Scripture is in both camps because both of these are true. And we don't have to pick which one we like the best. Now, there's a connection between verses 36 and verse 37 with our text. In verse 36, Jesus is speaking to the multitude. The multitude had seen the miracles, the multiplication of the bread and the fish. They had witnessed that. They came to Him unbelieving, wanting another miracle. And Jesus says to them in verse 36, I said to you that you have seen Me, and you do not believe. That is a condemning statement because in verse 35, He offered Him salvation. If you will come to Me, you will never, never thirst. You will never, never hunger. Just come to Me. Come to Me and take what I freely offer to you. But you have seen me, and yet you remain in unbelief. And who is to blame for their unbelief? They are, because they love darkness rather than light. They do not want to come to the truth or come to the light, and they are to be condemned for their unbelief. Now the connection between verse 36 and verse 37 is this. Does the unbelief of the multitude, even the Jews of Jesus' own day, those to whom He came and His own received Him not, does their rejection nullify or thwart the saving and redeeming purposes of God? This multitude that stands before Him, there are only twelve, and one of them is a demon. Judas, not a demon, literal demon, but is of the devil. One of them is a devil, that's Judas. So He only has eleven people with Him who truly believe in Him. And the rest of the multitude, the thousands who stood there and saw all of this and heard His words, they do not believe. And so the real question is, is Jesus going to be discouraged that some did not believe? Is the unbelief of man going to thwart the sovereign purposes of God? Does man's unbelief keep Jesus from doing what Jesus came to do? Is God going to be eternally frustrated and saddened for all of eternity saying, I did my best, I tried, but I just couldn't do save enough? Is God going to be eternally disappointed? He's not. That's what verse 37 is all about. Though you remain in unbelief, Jesus said, my confidence is this, that the Father has given to me a people and they will all come. You may turn around and reject me by the thousands, but the Father has given to me a people and they will all come. And Jesus' confidence in His message and in His mission rested in the sovereign plan of God. Now there are three 
incredible truths packed into verse 37. Actually, there are a multitude of them, but we're going to gather them all together under three basic headings. The first we're going to look at today is this group who is the given, the elect. There is a people that is given by the Father to the Son. We're going to look at that today. Next week, we're going to look at the second one, and that is that all who are given come. They will come. They must come. They shall come. They will inevitably come. There's no uncertainty there. They will come. Why? Because they are given by the Father to the Son. They will come. Does that do violence to human will? Does that thwart our plans or our purposes? Is that divine or cosmic rape, as some people say it is? God forcing His love on us that we would be forced or drawn to come? We'll deal with that next Sunday. And then the third major truth is the one at the end of verse 37. All who come to me, I will in no wise or no way cast away. I will not turn away any who come to me. That is the free, open offer of the gospel to any who will come. So those are our three headings. We're just going to deal with the first today, which is this gift of the given. Look at verse 37 again. We're just going to deal with this first phrase today. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The all there at the beginning is a neuter word in the Greek. Jesus is not describing individuals with that word. He is describing or speaking of the elect as or as an entire company. He is speaking of the whole group of those whom the Father has given to the Son. So He doesn't have in view with the word all individuals. He does have in view with the word all the entire company of the chosen. All whom the Father has given to me. It is a group. It is a corporate group. Now, what is that corporate group made up of? Individuals. Because everything in the rest of the passage are the actions of individuals. It is the individual elect that come to the Son. It is the individual elect one who beholds the Son, verse 40. And it is the individual elect one who believes upon the Son, verse 40. It is the individual elect who is secured by Christ. And it is the individual elect whom Christ will raise up on the last day. So it is true at the beginning of verse 37 that Jesus is speaking of a company of people. But it is not an indiscriminate company of people. It's not a nameless, faceless company of people. It's not just a class of people that you and I get into. It is a people made up of individuals whom the Father has given to His Son, whom the Son will redeem. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now here's the question. Is the all, at the beginning of verse 37, all of humanity? Is the all at the beginning of verse 7, uh, 37, all that the Father gives me, is it all of humanity? Is it every man, woman, and child who has ever lived from Pharaoh all the way to today, every person alive on the face of the earth? Is it all of humanity that is given by the Father to the Son? Now, there are some who would like to say, yes, it is, that this group of people is just humanity in general. It is the mass of people. Everybody who has ever lived was given by the Father to the Son. Does the context bear that out? And the answer to that is no. And there are three reasons why, and you can see them in the verses that follow, verses 37 through 40. First of all, all, not all who of, not all who are alive today come to the sun. That should be clear to us, right? Not everybody comes to the sun, do they? It's all who are given who come to the sun. But not all come to the sun. That was obvious even in Jesus' own context, immediate context. He's talking to whom? The unbelievers, right? Those who came to Him demanding the sign, who would not, verse 36, believe. And Jesus is drawing a line between those who come and those who do not come. And He's saying, all who have been given to Me by the Father will come. Why is it that the crowd did not come? Why did they not believe? Because they had not been given by the Father to the Son. All who have been given by the Father to the Son will come. 
Not all come to Christ. Therefore, not all have been given by the Father to the Son. Second of all, all who are given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son. That's the certainty. Now, not all come, which is evidence that Jesus does not here mean all of humanity. Because if all of humanity was given, all of humanity would come. All of humanity does not come. All who are given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son. That is Jesus' promise. Not, not might come, not could come, not are more likely to come, not are now allowed to come. It is, they will come. There's no uncertainty there. It's an absolute statement. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Furthermore, all of those who are given by the Father to the Son are raised up on the last day. They are given salvation and they are raised up on the last day. Look at verse 39. This is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. That phrase, raise it up on the last day, refers to the resurrection of the just. Those who have committed themselves to Jesus Christ will again be raised up on the last day to enter into the new heavens and the new earth and be given or then be able to live that eternal life and be with the Father and the Son forever and ever and ever. That phrase, raised up on the last day, occurs four times in the context. Look at verse 44. Uh, Sorry, look at verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws Him. I will raise Him up on the last day. Look down at verse 54. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Being raised up on the last day and having eternal life are basically synonyms for each other. All who are given eternal life are raised up on the last day. Now it is all who are given by the Father to the Son that are raised up on the last day. How can Jesus say that? Verse 40, because the will of the Father is that he lose none. So the Father is not going to commit to the Son a group of people and the Son say, well, I got 10% of them, Father. I got 3% of them. I know I lost 97% of humanity. I know I'm a terrific failure, and I did not keep what you had given me to keep. But here I have kept all that allowed me to keep them. That'll never happen. It can't happen. All who are given will come. Not all come. Not all receive eternal life. Some will perish. The majority of humanity will perish in their sins. They will get what they deserve. They will get what they want. Not all will come. Who will come? Who will be raised up on the last day? Those to whom the Son gives eternal life. To whom does the Son give eternal life? Those who come to Him. Who comes to Him? Those whom the Father has given to the Son come to Him. This doctrine is called in Scripture the doctrine of election. You're familiar with it probably because you read passages in Scripture that speak of God electing or choosing us. I'm going to read to you a few of them, and we want to talk about a little bit about what election is not. We can begin with Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He, that is the Father, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Peter in his first epistle begins right at the beginning of his epistle by diving into this massive deep pool of theology. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, he writes his epistle to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. Now you notice the reference to the word foreknowledge there, right? Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. What does that mean, foreknowledge? Does it mean that God looked down through time and saw those who would believe on Him and then He chose those? 
It doesn't mean that. That's not what the Greek word prognosko means. It doesn't mean God's foresight, that He's a good prognosticator, that He has a good crystal ball, and that He looked down through history and He learned something about us and chose us on that basis. The word prognosko means foreloved. It is the word to know and to know beforehand, and the knowledge that is being spoken of is not knowledge of our actions before we make them. It is knowledge of you and I. He knows us intimately. He loved us, and because He loved us beforehand, He chose us beforehand in Him. Every time that word foreknowledge is used, it never means God foreknowing that something was going to happen and then acting on that foreknowledge. It means to love ahead of time. The same word is used of Christ in 1 Peter chapter 1, the same passage, where Jesus is said to be foreknown before the foundation of the world. Does that mean God looked down through history and saw Jesus and said, I'll make Him the Messiah since He's going to do all of these great things? doesn't mean that at all. It means that God the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And He sent the Son into the world to redeem sinners. That's what the word foreknowledge means. It means loved ahead of time. Also in Peter's first epistle, chapter 2, Peter says that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation for God's own possession, so that we may declare the praises and the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. First Peter 5.13, here's how Peter ends his epistle. He begins his epistle by writing to those who are the chosen, Listen to how he ends his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. He writes to the chosen from the chosen. That's how he describes believers. We are the chosen ones. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that he thanked God, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Notice the reference to love. How often the word loving and God's love of us is connected with His choosing of us because that's what foreknowledge is. It is that love, that love that God set on us in eternity past. Second Thessalonians 2.13, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. What is this beginning? When did this choosing happen? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Go back as far as you can go. Grace was granted to you in Christ from all eternity. That's when you got that grace. But Paul says it has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life in immortality to light through the gospel. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. In hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. When did God promise our eternal life? Long ages ago. Before ever there was an angel, before ever there was an Adam. God promised salvation. And I ask you this, who did God promise salvation to? To whom was that promise made? When the Father promised to save a people, when did God promise that salvation in eternity past? Who was in eternity past before the angels and before us? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who promised salvation? The Godhead promised salvation, and the members of the Godhead promised this salvation and this grace in eternity past, to one another. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. Acts 13, verse 48 says, As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. You mean some are appointed to eternal life? That's right. 
God appoints some to eternal life, and those who are appointed to eternal life believed. Those who were not appointed to eternal life did not believe. And which takes place first, the appointing or the believing? The appointing takes first. That takes place first. The appointing takes place first. 2 Timothy 2.10, Paul says this, and this was a great missionary verse. For this reason I endure all things, for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain salvation and with it eternal glory. Paul, why do you suffer? Why do you endure affliction? Why do you go on the missionary journeys? Why do you do everything that you do? Paul says it's for the sake of the elect. Because Paul knew the Father is given to the Son and people, and I'm going to give my life to bring those people to the Father and to the Son. For this reason I endure everything that I do. It's for the sake of those who are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's the doctrine of election. And here's what I love about John 6. We've looked at all the other passages. This is what's marvelous to me about the passage in John 6. It's so much more personal. Do you notice that? The word chosen is not used. The word elect is not used. What is, what is used? All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now this, this blows my mind away. I, I think of terms of election. I can think of God choosing me. Those are magnificent promises. But just for a moment, think of this. When He chose you, His act of choosing included with that choice. The giving of you and this entire corporate body known as the chosen or the elect, the church, the bride, the Father in choosing those people gave those people to His Son. You, if you are among the elect, are an inter-Trinitarian love gift. The Father loved the Son with an infinite and eternal love. And the Father loved a people with an infinite and eternal love. And the Father chose those people and said to His Son, I'm going to give you a bride. And He took those people whom He chose because He foreloved them, and the Father gave them to the Son and committed all of those people to the care and the saving of His Son's work. Don't rush past that. Is not is that not amazing to you that you as a chosen one have been committed from one member of the Trinity to the other member of the Trinity and the son the father said to the son son I love you here is a people in the eternal counsels of God he knew we would rebel he knew we would sin and he knew we would need saving and the son knowing what the will of the father is said I will take this gift I will not turn any of them away. And Father, I will see to the task that you have committed to me. I will go. I will die for these people. I will pay the price for my sheep. I will gather them all in, bring them all back to you, and present them to you because everything that is mine is yours and everything that is yours is mine. Salvation is so much bigger than just me asking Jesus into my heart, isn't it? This was a plan that was hatched in eternity past. The plan of the triune God to glorify Himself in the redemption of sinners it began with the Father choosing a people and turning around and giving those people to the Son. The Son saying, I will save them. I will keep them. And Father, at the end of time, I will present them back to you as a glorious bride. Beautiful and magnificent. Now maybe I'm just making too much out of this word given in John 6, right? I mean, I'm just, I'm just taking given here and I'm building this entire, what would you call it, Calvinistic theology or Reformed theology on this one word given. Maybe it was just a slip of, of John's pen or a slip of Jesus' tongue to use this phrase given by the Father to me. 
Let's look over at two other passages of Scripture where this exact same theme is expounded upon in other contexts. Look at John chapter 10. We read this for our Scripture reading. I want to take you through it now, and I want you to notice all of the places where the Son speaks of a people who belong to Him because the Father gave them to Him. John chapter 10, of course, this is the Good Shepherd discourse, and Jesus is answering the objections and the criticisms of those who refuse to come to Him and refuse to believe. I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own. You mean this shepherd that Jesus is speaking of has his own sheep? That's right. Not every sheep, not every person belongs to him. His sheep do. And this shepherd knows his sheep. So he calls his own by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, verse 4, the shepherd, this good shepherd, owns a sheep. Now look down at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep. And Jesus is distinguishing between himself and the hired hand. Jesus is saying in the face of danger, wolves, I will not leave my sheep because my sheep know me and I own my sheep. These sheep belong to me. How did the sheep belong to him? Not everybody belongs to him in this sense, but his sheep do. His sheep belong to him. Look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Jesus possesses a people. Verse 15, even as the Father knows me, I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep. I possess other sheep which are not of this fold. He's speaking of the Gentiles there. He's not speaking, he's speaking of those who, a sheep who belong to him which are not part of the nation of Israel, not just Jewish, not just Jewish sheep. Look down at verse 24. This is where the Jews gather around him and say, if you're the Christ, stop stop keeping us in suspense. Tell us plainly. Now, had he told them? Come on. He tells them in every chapter all the way through this book who he is. And this is just another statement of their unbelief and their unwillingness to accept what he's already told them. Uh, go ahead and make it plain to us, verse 24. If you're the Christ, then just, just say it like it is. He had been saying it like it is, verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Stop for a second there. They do not believe because they are not of a sheep. That is the polar opposite of what we are taught and how we sometimes present the gospel. We think, uninformed, that by believing in Him, we become one of His. Or we begin to belong to Him when we believe upon Him. That's the way we think. Believe in Jesus and then you'll be one of His sheep. Is that what Jesus says, verse 26? You do not believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. It is not the belonging that results from the believing. It is the believing that results from the belonging. It is because you belong to me that you believe in me. And it is because you do not belong to me that you do not believe in me. Why did the Pharisees not believe in him? They were not his sheep. They did not belong to him. That explains the rejection of him. It is not our uh, believing that makes us belonging to him. It is our belonging to Him that makes us believe in Him. The belonging to Him comes first before the foundation of the world. When the Father gave a people to the Son, we belong to Him. And because we belong to Him, we believe. That's what verse 27 says. My sheep hear my voice. He's not speaking about the still small voice receiving messages from God there. That's not what he's talking about. He is saying to them, it is because you are not of my sheep that you do not hear me. Those who are my sheep, they will hear me. And they will hear me. Verse 27, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. Sounds just like John 6, doesn't it? Why do you not believe? 
you're not of my sheep. My sheep are a different group of people. They hear me. They come to me. They follow me. I give them eternal life. I secure them. And I lose none of them. No one will ever snatch them out of my hand or the Father's hand. It is our belonging to Christ by virtue of the Father's gift to the Son that we believe upon Him. It is not the other way around. Now flip over to John chapter... Oh, no, no. Verse 29. Verse 29 is equally important. God, I can't miss this one. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Who gave these sheep to the Son? What, verse 20, 20, 29, what does it say? Who gave the sheep to the Son? Is everybody His sheep? No, they're not. When did the Father give the sheep to the Son? Before a single Adam was spoken into existence. That's when the Father gave His sheep to the Son for the Son's care and for the Son's salvation the son, so that the Son might save them. Now turn over to John chapter 17. A few passages I want you to notice there. This is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. About to leave the world, the following day He's going to be crucified. He is praying in this passage for those who belong to Him, for His own, for the disciples, and for all those who will believe upon Him through the word of the, and the testimony of the disciples. He is not, you're going to see in verse 9, praying for the entire world. He is praying for those who belong to Him. This is the intercessory prayer of our great high priest who intercedes for those who are His. Verse 1. Father, your hour has come. The hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him. Here again, Jesus is speaking of a group of people who are given to him by the Father, that he may give them eternal life. What is the result of God the Father giving this group of people to the Son? The Son gives them eternal life. That's verse 3. Or verse 2, this is the eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. Out of the world, they were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Stop there for just a second. There is the world, and there are the people whom the Father has given to the Son out of the world. Those are two different groups of people. There are those who do not belong to the Son and there are those who do belong to the Son by virtue of the fact that the Father owned them and they belonged to the Father and the Father loved them and gave them to the Son. And they became His people and His sheep. Verse 7, Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you and they believed that you sent me. Why did these believe? The ones whom He is speaking of, why did they believe? Because they were His sheep, and they heard His voice, and they came to Him, and He gave them eternal life, that explains the belief of the disciples. Why did those eleven men believe and the thousands others did not? Because those eleven men belonged to the Son. They were His sheep, and they were given to the Son by the Father. That's why they believed. Not because they were more spiritual, not because they made a better choice, not because they grew up in a different household. Nothing to do with any of that. Because they were elect. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, and I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. You see the reference to those who are given by the Father to the Son? Look at verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. They don't belong to that group of people. They belong to a different group of people. That's why the world hates them, because they're not of the world. They're of your sheep. They're of my sheep. They belong to me. Look at verse 22. The glory which you have given me, 
I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one in them and I in them and you in me that they may be perfect and in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you notice the connection of loving with giving? The Father loved us just as He loved the Son. And so He loved the Son before the foundation of the world. And the Father loved His people before the foundation of the world. And the Father took those that were His and He gave them and committed them to the Son. So John 6 teaches it. John 10 teaches it with a different metaphor. John 6 is the bread of life metaphor. John 10 is the good shepherd metaphor. It's the same truth being expounded with two different metaphors. And then in John 17, it forms the whole basis of Jesus' last prayer, last lengthy prayer to the Father before He was crucified. Father, I have done this. I have accomplished it. I have kept the ones that You have given to Me and I turned them all back over to You. I have finished the mission. And then He was going to the cross to die for those whom the Father had given to Him. Wow. Does your head hurt or is it just my head that hurts? That's incredible truth. That's divine truth. Who is the giver? The Father. You know, typically He's the one we overlook in thanking for our salvation. We think of what Jesus did because we think he, we think of Him as having left the glories of heaven and coming down here and humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we celebrate His incarnation at Christmas and His death and resurrection and Easter Sunday and Resurrection Sunday. We celebrate those events and our minds think often of the tremendous sacrifice that the Son gave in redeeming a people. But our minds don't typically think as much of the fact that before ever there was an earth for the Son to come to, the Father loved you with an eternal, unending, infinite love of His own, because you belong to Him. And He set that love on you, and He chose you. And then He turned around and took you, and He gave you with the whole company of the elect to His Son and committed you to the Son. And the Son then came here to die in the place of all those whom the Father had given to Him so that He might present us a glorious bride before His throne with exceeding joy, spotless and pure, and so that we could spend eternity with Him because the Father loved us, and the Father loved His Son. And the Father could think of nothing greater to do as a gift to His Son than to give us. It is because we are spanky. We're great. We're the bee's knees. We're so wonderful. That's not it at all. The Father, by His own sovereign grace, for His own eternal purposes, chose a people. It's not because you're smarter, prettier, more wise, more spiritual, any less of a sinner than anybody else. God has not revealed to us the basis of that election we just know that it is not us. It is not because God looked down through time and saw how spanky we were, saw that we would turn around and accept Him if given the chance, and so He chose us on that behalf. No, no, no. That's, that's an idea that we import into the text of Scripture. There's no passage in Scripture that teaches that. Not a single one. That results from us trying to figure out how it is that we account for these gaps in our knowledge or our understanding. We try and come up with these ways of harmonizing divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they are not ours to harmonize. They don't need to be harmonized because they're not in conflict with one another. Not at all. You may not be able to perceive that. I may not be able to perceive that. But that's true. That's true. One last thing, and we'll deal with this, and I'm just going to briefly mention it because we're going to pick it up with this next Sunday you will notice the certainty that this giving uh, results in, they will come. That was John 10, right? My sheep hear my voice and they will come to me. Is Jesus worried that some that the Father has given to Him will not come? Is that possible? Is it possible for 
the fathers who have given people to the Son to have some of them not make it for some reason? Not at all possible. This is an unqualified, unambiguous, absolute promise that every last individual who has been given out of the world by the Father to the Son will, with absolute certainty, come to the Son. And having come, they will receive eternal life, and then they will be raised up on the last day. That is the absolute, certain promise of Jesus Christ. He will not fail to save that which the Father has given to Him to save and to redeem. And you say, how do I know? I mean, I believed on Christ and I trusted Him for salvation. I've been born again. How do I know if I am among those who have been given by the Father to the Son? Well, you just answered the question, didn't you? Because you believe. What is the proof of my election? This is the fact that I have believed. I believed. I have been born again. I have been changed. I have been given a new spirit. The Spirit of God dwells in me. That is the proof of my election. That is the guarantee of my election. How do I know that I am elect? Because I have believed. It's not possible for a non-elect person to believe. None of the non-elect will come. They don't want anything from Christ. They don't want Him at all. They don't desire Him. They don't belong to Him. They will not believe. And their unbelief is their own, their own sin. So how do I know I have been given by the Father to the Son? If you have believed. You say, well, what if I'm sitting here and I'm not a Christian yet? And I'm wondering, have I been given by the Father to the Son? Well, there's one way I can tell you that you can know for certain. Come to the Son. And if you come to the Son, He will not cast you out. And then you will find out that you were given by the Father to the Son. Come to Christ today. Come to Him for salvation, and He will see to it that you never hunger and thirst for eternal life. You never, never hunger and thirst for eternal life. He will never turn you away. You must come to Him and beg Him for His mercy and beg Him for His grace. Repent of your sin. Acknowledge your iniquity and your wickedness. Acknowledge your self-righteousness and your wicked and desperately darkened heart. And come to the Son and turn from your wickedness to Him and believe upon Him and His sacrifice. And you will find that He will not cast you out. He will give to you eternal life. And you say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want righteousness. I don't want holiness. I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I will worship Him on my own terms, and I will come to Him when I'm ready, and I don't have any desire for those things. Well, that's your problem. Don't blame God for your unbelief. You're getting exactly what you want, exactly what you desire. You don't want Him. You don't want holiness. You don't want righteousness. And you love darkness more than light. Don't blame God for that. You have you to blame for that. And you will get for all of eternity exactly what you want in this life. And it will not be because the Father has not given you to the Son that you will be punished. It will be because you would not come to the Son and you love darkness more than light. That will be the reason that you will spend eternity paying for the penalty of your own sin. Come to the Son today. He will not cast you out. He will give you eternal life and He will raise you up on the last day. That is His gracious promise. Come and freely take what He freely offers Freely. And you'll have life. And if you will not, you will perish everlastingly. Let's pray. Our Father, such magnificent words from our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly they are infinite in their glory and infinite in their uh, understanding. We, we simply cannot even begin to plumb the depths of these great realities. We can only thank You and stand in awe of You that before time began... You loved us and set Your love upon us and then gave us to Your Son. 
And we thank the Son, O Lord Jesus, for dying in our place and leaving the glories of heaven and humbling Yourself and becoming a man in order to pay the penalty for our sin on the cross. And we thank You, O Spirit of God, that You have done the work of drawing us to the Son and seeing to it that He would lose none and that all would come. We have not ourselves or our own will or our own abilities to thank for our salvation, but only Your free and effective grace. We thank You in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.